Tron in 60 seconds, reviewing the film Tron Legacy one minute at a time. I'm your host Courtney Colson. this is Minute 1. This minute begins with blackness and ends with Sam Flynn saying, you got in? The Tronified Disney castle at the beginning is cool, I, I like when production cards help build the mood for the film to come. And Disney's castle logo has been in use since 1985. It's based on their Cinderella castle at Magic Kingdom. The Grid. A digital frontier. I tried to picture clusters of information as they moved through the computer. What did they look like? Ships? Motorcycles? Were the circuits like freeways? I kept dreaming of a world I thought I'd never see. And then, one day... You got in. <laughs> That's right, man. I got in. This is such an iconic way to open this film. It's simple, yet grand and cinematic, emphasized by Daft Punk's incredible score. The dialogue is slick and efficient. It tells you everything you need to know. We hear Flynn recapping the first film. We can hear that he's much older now. And then, a small boy's voice interjects, letting us know that much has changed. Flynn is a father. It also tells us the theme of the entire film. Legacy. Creator, creation, father, son. A favourite subject of mine. See my work with the Alien prequels for more information. Tron has always been a strange property. Disney's red-headed stepchild, born during a malaise era for the company following the death of Roy Disney. Interestingly enough, it wouldn't be the only industry affected by a malaise era. This was also the time that the car industry entered its malaise period. So I guess the 70s just weren't a good time for anybody. And I guess it makes sense, the economy kind of runs on oil. Some Disney scholars refer to this as the Bronze Age. And it feels weird to say Disney scholars, but given the size of the empire, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that they exist. This is an era that holds the most fascination for me, as the films produced during this time were thoroughly un-Disney. They were stepping away from fairy tales, they were trying to tell more mature, sometimes more secular stories. This period launched the careers of the likes of Tim Burton and Don Bluth. They were using a different and cheaper animation method, and most notable to our story, they were aiming for a teen demographic, particularly with their live-action films. The world owes a lot to Star Wars. One really could divide the history of cinema as before Star Wars and after Star Wars. The cinema snob in me is a little disappointed that this franchise steals a bit of 2001 A Space Odyssey's thunder there. But there's no denying that Star Wars has a much broader appeal than the works of Kubrick. Even Ridley Scott says that Star Wars was his motivation to make a science fiction movie, despite the numerous nods to Kubrick throughout his Alien films. To quote, I cancelled the film I was going to do after I saw Star Wars. I'd finished The Duelist, which upon reflection, it's a good film, they got a prize at Cannes. Ever humble Ridley Scott, I've become very familiar with this man because I've been reviewing the aforementioned Alien prequels. I enjoyed making The Duelist so much that I decided with producer David Putman that I'd do a medieval romance, Tristan and Isolde. I was in LA to show the duelists, and David said, There's a film called Star Wars at the Chinese. 
I can get two tickets, do you want to go? I think you should go. We went to an afternoon performance at 2 o'clock. I was eight rows from the front with David Putnam. I question whether or not this man can remember such minutia 40, 50 years on, but alrighty then. I never saw or felt audience participation like that in my life. The theatre was shaking. When that Death Star came in at the beginning, I thought I can't possibly do Tristan and Isolde. I have to find something else. By the time the movie was finished, it was so stunning that it made me miserable. That's the highest compliment I can give it. I was miserable for a week. I hadn't met George at that point, but I thought, fuck George. Then somebody sent me this script called Alien. I said, wow, I'll do it. <laughs> I love this man. He's, he's fun. He's fun. Disney too was inspired, or perhaps more accurately threatened by the success of Star Wars. In 1977, Disney certainly didn't crack the top 10 in the box office. It's hard to imagine a time when they weren't doing that on the regular. The last time they had been in the top 10 was The Love Bug in 1969 with a gross of $21 million, which, just as an aside, rightly deserved. I love Herbie. It cannot be overstated the sheer ludicrous success of Star Wars. Man, I've said that name a lot. It's... Total gross was $300 million, and the rest of the competition were hovering around $40 or $50 million. It earned three times more than they were. <laughs> it's insane! Nothing came close to earning that much in the preceding years, or the following years, for a long time yet. Not even close. Disney's response to Star Wars was... Not Tron, at least not yet. Their first foray into the teen science fiction action-adventure film was The Black Hole. You know, the really slow, quiet movie where almost nothing happens until the last 10 minutes when it goes butt-fucking-wild. And look, I love The Black Hole. I think it taps into some fascinating, dark ideas. I love the vibe of it, the feel of it. I think about it often, and I can't get over the fact that many years later we would essentially see it remade into an adult horror movie in Event Horizon. It really was the first movie to ever depict a black hole, so they genuinely tried. And speaking of Event Horizon, that was technically a production from not long after Black Hole happened. Uh, it was William Malone's Dead Star, and there is some information about that online. And there was a, I think it was, had this not get made episode about it. They were interviewing William Malone. I'll put that in the citations. But why I mention it is the black hole connection, first of all. But also there's a Giga connection. So Giga did some artwork for that. And the whole story was that they go through the black hole and end up in hell. And his depiction of Satan is just awesome. It's so cool. I love it. So... It's all, it's all connected. I can't escape the alien universe here. <laughs> anyway, so they genuinely tried. I just don't understand how Disney watched something as thrilling as Star Wars and decided to make something the exact opposite. Okay, swing and a miss. What else could they make? Enter Tron. What can be said about Tron that hasn't already been said on this very podcast feed already? Well... Not much, actually. I, I won't go into depth about the production of Tron, as Duncan has done a fine job of that already. But what I can say is a Star Wars killer it was not. 
It earned less than the black hole, down from 35 million to 33 million domestically, although internationally it's hard to tell, but it probably were pretty neck and neck. But as the years wore on and Tron gained a small but respectable fan base, it's no surprise then that there had long been an interest in making a sequel. The earliest report I can find to a Tron 2 is Pixar and Steve Jobs looking to make a Tron sequel or remake in 1999. They weren't entirely certain at that point. That was all I could dig up. Then in 2003, there was the Tron 2.0 PC game, which instead follows Jethro, the son of Alan Bradley and Laura Baines. I'll have to review that sometime. 2010 would finally see the release of a Tron sequel, and in 3D, no less. Remember 3D? I forgot all about it. It was... I remember the, the inconvenience of, oh, do we book a, a 3D session or a normal session to watch this, and oh, you gotta fiddle around with the glasses and make sure you return them to the bin, and... Not to tangent too much, but it freaked me out. The other day, when I did remember 3D existed, I found a Reddit post from a child, I can only assume, because they said, Oh yeah, when I was a little kid, they used to have 3D and you would wear these got A little kid, oh my god, it wasn't that long ago. Oh, it was 10 years ago, I guess. <laughs> wow, I feel old. Tron Legacy was a moderate success. Not a flop, but then again, Disney always wanted Tron to be a Star Wars killer. They always wanted it to be something it could never be. In the end, Disney decided, let's just buy Star Wars. <laughs> you know, let's not try and uh, make an imitation. We'll just buy the whole damn franchise so they don't need Tron. They kicked it to the curb. They were, financially, there was just no incentive for them to pursue it. And I think the other problem is that Tron always seems to happen at the wrong time. Nowadays, I think it could be quite a respectable television series. I mean, Disney's got its Disney Plus streaming service. Why not bring back Tron Uprising? You can have these more niche products. And there's clearly an audience for Tron. You know, I'm making this podcast because people love these movies. I'm definitely not a Disney file. I have a lot of issues with the corporation, greed, unfair working conditions, monopolization of the entertainment industry, and worst of all, changing and extending copyright laws to suit their own purposes. But I also grew up with these movies. Many people all over the world share these stories in common. They are great if unchallenging films. They are undeniably culturally important. Why I choose to discuss Tron Legacy is to explore the creative merit in a massive Hollywood product. I was born in the 1990s, so I have spent most of my life in a time where studios wanted safe options, franchises, remakes, reboots, sequels, reboot makewalls, if you will. Less than half of all Hollywood films are original now. Terrifying, I know, but what I find fascinating is that this nostalgia is localized specifically to the 1980s. There's almost no demand for revivals of properties from the 60s or 70s or prior. There's the odd example, Herbie fully loaded here, the man from Uncle there. The 90s are slowly creeping into the nostalgic window with Matrix Resurrections and Jurassic Park. But by and large, we are made to revisit the halcyon days of the Generation X adolescence over and over again. 
Is this simply because it's Gen X that makes up a majority of filmmakers and businessmen in the industry right now? Not necessarily. There's still a lot of boomers in the industry, like Spielberg and Ridley Scott. They're now remaking or homaging their own works from the 80s, not the stories of their own childhoods. To quote SAWA, Cinema goers are typically younger than the population, with generally half of the visits made by people in the key 14 to 34 demographic. Cinema going has increased against all age groups in the last few years, with the most dramatic growth seen amongst the over 25s. Movie remakes made in the last 10 years have attracted an older age group and brought more people back to the movies. So, strangely, a majority of the kids watching these reboot makewalls are not seeing the source material. And I actually would count myself amongst them. I only watched Tron just prior to seeing Legacy. And now 12 years have passed and Tron Legacy is a piece of my childhood. I remember seeing the first film in costume as Quora when I was 18. So time is really moving ever faster. Nostalgia is an underlying theme for all my podcasts. The Alien prequels, Tron Legacy and Blade Runner 2049. They are all ambitious sequels to beloved franchises of the 1980s that have been made within a seven-year window of each other. I also review Robocop on 60 Seconds to Comply, and we do discuss the, the remake, but um, well, the less said about that remake, the better. But I do think there's something deeper at play here. My other Movies by Minute podcast is Christine, a movie set in the late 1970s that longs for the 1950s. I would argue that the 1950s is the first period in history that inspired a nostalgic revival. You see this in the works of John Carpenter and Stephen King, for example. To this day, the 50s are a popular era to emulate. Nostalgia itself is a relatively recent phenomenon, one that couldn't really exist before capitalism. Certainly people, since time began, have longed to go back to their past to happier or healthier, less troubled days, but it wasn't a longing for a different culture, because culture didn't change that much within an individual's lifetime. There were no movies being released each week, no new fashion trends each season, even recordings of music were hard to access until relatively recently. The world our ancestors occupied was smaller than we can possibly fathom, and then World War I happened and the term nostalgia was coined. At the time, it was a kind of homesickness, which we now understand to be post-traumatic stress disorder. Then the 1920s rolled around, and we saw the emergence of fast fashion, global communication, and the rise of the automobile industry, the record industry, and cinema. In other words, pop culture was born. The products that shift as rapidly as the sands of time itself, according to the superficial whims and tastes of a population at a certain moment. This is why each decade of the 20th century is markedly different from that of the last. The media was having a stronger influence over our lives. Is this a bad thing? Not necessarily. Personally, I just think it's fascinating from an anthropological standpoint. We can now drown ourselves in the next novelty, the new decoration or distraction in our lives thanks to the internet. Despite all of this, we are seeing culture slowing down as technology speeds up, or at least, that's my take on it. The changes between the 2000s and the 2010s and the 2020s are much more subtle than, say, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 
the stories we are telling are rarely new. But is this the condemnation? Not exactly. Yes, I do believe capitalism plays a big part in the lack of originality, but I would also like to argue a counterpoint, that we are reaching a kind of cultural stability again. Characters and stories are staying in the public consciousness for longer, much like ancient Greek heroes or pulp fiction icons that had their tales told over and over again. We don't focus so much on the actors as we do the characters nowadays. Spider-Man will fill a cinema no matter who's behind that mask. The fact that we have more Tron in the world is definitely not a bad thing, and perhaps it's just one indication of a cultural equilibrium taking place. So, I hope you'll stick around for the rest of this series. If you're not familiar with my other Movies by Minute podcasts, I like to take a somewhat unconventional approach compared to other Movies by Minute podcasts, and then I like to approach this as an essay, and this first episode has put down a lot of the ideas that I will continue to explore throughout. I do have occasional second opinions I like to have guests on, sort of intermittently. But that about covers it for now. This is Colson. End of line. You can find me at trivindesigns.com, T-R-A-V-A-A-N, or patreon.com slash trivindesigns.